Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Greetings to the May episode, listeners. I'm news editor Elizabeth Pearson, and not joining me in the studio today are staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And production editor Neil McKim. Hello. Instead, we are all recording from our own homes while we socially distance ourselves from each other. So apologies if our audio isn't quite up to its usual quality. However, I do assure you that we will be delivering the same quality content that we always do. Of course. The pandemic is no reason to give up on stargazing, however. Though you may be unable to travel to a dark sky site, there are still plenty of things that you can see from your back garden. Or even from the comfort of your own armchair. You can visit www.skyatnightmagazine.com to read our full list of all the ways that you can do astronomy from isolation. But for now, here are a few of our favourite activities. Learn your way around the night sky by finding the brightest constellations and then using an app or guide to begin navigating around. Um, Yeah, one of the things I've been enjoying is um, just grabbing a pair of binoculars and standing in the garden and looking up at, uh, well, Venus at the moment, but also the moon. Uh, the, moon, the moon's great, um, even through a pair of modest binoculars, and you can see lots of lunar features and spot its changing faces night after night. Um, and actually, we've got some good observing guides on the website. So if you go to skyatnightmagazine.com forward slash the hyphen moon, um, there's lots of content on there to help you get started. And if you're feeling artistic, you can always grab a pencil and paper when you're looking at the moon um, and try making your own lunar sketches. This is a great way to learn all of the features and really get a look at close up at the detail that you might otherwise miss. Um, It's also because we can all see the moon from our own gardens. It's a great way to connect with family and friends. Even though you're far away, you all see the same moon. So why not all go out, draw it at the same time, and then share your efforts afterwards, and so you can be together even though you're far apart. And why not become a citizen scientist and take part in an online astronomy project? You can visit science.nasa.gov 
forward slash citizen science for a list of all NASA's latest projects. Um, these include helping to explore backyard worlds, or perhaps you could upload images to help with JunoCam. Yeah, that, that that's a good one for anyone who's um, currently in, in isolation or lockdown and doesn't have a back garden. Um, that's a good thing that you can kind of do. Uh, and another thing is um, you can actually download data from space missions and you can use software such as like the free software GIMP or Photoshop if you have it and you can actually process these images. Um, so you're you're taking uh, data from space missions like Juno or um, some of the other NASA planetary missions or the Hubble Space Telescope and actually processing them yourself. Um, and you can find out more about that if you visit our website and in the search bar at the top of the page just start searching process i find that 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 brings up all our um guides to uh, processing space images um and of course there's all the latest episodes of the sky at night tv show on iplayer um they also have a wealth of archive footage that's available on there with patrick moore talking to neil armstrong um as well as all kinds of other things, uh, activities that you can do from your own back garden or even out of a window. Um, so have a look on there and hopefully you should find lots that you can get up to, even if you can't get away to your favourite observing site. But now back to this month's issue, that's the May issue. This episode of the podcast should be coming out on around the 24th of April. On that date in 1990, a very important spacecraft made its way into orbit. You might have heard of it. It's called the Hubble Space Telescope. So today, 30 years on, we're going to take a look back at what this remarkable observatory has been up to. So firstly, it's worth mentioning that the Hubble Space Telescope is named after Edwin Hubble a famous US astronomer who changed the way astronomers looked at the universe. Before Hubble, it was widely believed that the observable universe consisted of one galaxy, our Milky Way. But by studying variable stars in faint nebulae, Hubble proved that these galaxies were too distant to be part of our galaxy. In 1929, he observed that the velocity of such galaxies was proportional to their distance from Earth, the first evidence for the universe's expansion. The idea of putting a telescope in Earth's atmosphere was first suggested by German scientist Hermann Obert in the 1920s. Basically, the idea was to get a scope into a position above the distortion of the atmosphere, far above the clouds and light pollution, to give an unobstructed view of the universe beyond. In the 40s, the American physicist Lyman Spitzer promoted the idea further and it gathered momentum, being taken up by NASA in the late 60s with the idea of launching a large space telescope as it was then known. In all, dozens of contractors, a handful of universities and several NASA centres spanning 21 states and 12 other countries helped to make the space telescope a reality. But although funding was approved in the 70s, constraints overshadowed the space telescope's development. Hubble was supposed to carry seven instruments, but due to cost-cutting, NASA reduced this to four. But fortunately, ESA, the European Space Agency, stepped in with a fifth. While over in Britain, British Aerospace contributed solar arrays built in Bristol. The California-based aerospace giant Lockheed was chosen to assemble the spacecraft, and it was no small task. 
as the Space Telescope was 13 metres long and was the equivalent weight of two full-grown elephants. Among its, <laughs> yeah, among, among its instruments was its wide field and planetary camera, which was replaced in 93 and, and again in 2009. This had dual cameras spanning from far ultraviolet to near infrared wavelengths. The WFPC, as it was known, was designed to make panoramic observations of hundreds of distant galaxies and high-resolution imaging of planets in our solar system. Although Hubble was supposed to be transported into orbit on a space shuttle in 1983, it was put back due to issues with its mirror until 1986. The original plan of installing a 3-metre mirror had also changed because of budget constraints to 2.4 metres. Unfortunately, the Challenger space shuttle disaster in 1986 put it back another four years until 1990, but this gave time to improve the solar panels and make other adjustments. Finally, on the 24th of April 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope was launched on board the Space Shuttle Discovery. It entered a geocentric orbit 550 kilometres above Earth, travelling at a speed of 2,800 kilometres an hour and orbiting every 97 minutes. And back on Earth, scientists were ready for when Hubble's data streamed in. At NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre, a control station could directly communicate with Hubble via an orbiting network of tracking and data relay satellites. And on the Maryland campus of the John Hopkins University, a dedicated space telescope science institute could run day-to-day operations, selecting targets with plans to make 30,000 observations every year. To get it into space, the project cost an eye-watering total of $4.7 billion, but arguably Hubble's launch marked the most significant advancement in astronomy since Galileo's time. It, you kind of forget that this has been, in, you said that it was being in plan since about the 1930s, the 1940s. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's 20 years before Sputnik went up. So they were <laughs> planning this before they even really knew how to get into space. That just blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to hear um, that it really kind of took off with within NASA around the, the 60s because you can you can kind of te- you can just sense you know what, what was happening at NASA in the 1960s mm. and the space race and the Cold War and Kennedy's speech and they were obviously just coming up with so many ideas of all these different things that they can now do you know since the kind of the the uh, Soviets had had proven that you could you could indeed launch satellites and even human beings into space it was that sort of philosophy of well if we can put a person on the moon I guess anything's possible yeah um, exactly um but one of the things I've been looking at is the um, the problems that started after they'd launched Hubble because there were issues with the optics. Um, just just after the launch of, of Hubble, the, the first images revealed this this aberration in the telescope's primary mirror that was affecting the clarity of the images. Um, and ultimately, I suppose it was a bit of a PR disaster, wasn't it? You know, they'd they'd been touting this this brand new space telescope that was going to change the way we looked at the universe, and um, you know, its first images were faulty. And it was something that they were going to have to fix. Um, and they, they, they diagnosed the problem as the mirror being too flat, um, out by about one fiftieth of the thickness of a human hair. Um, and it, it just being that... On something that was two and a half metres wide or something. <laughs> <laughs> just that, that much 
too flat that rather than collecting 70% of starlight to the focal point, it could only collect 10 to 15%. Because I guess if, if you think about a lens, that's what it's doing, isn't it? it it's curved and it's, 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 it's focusing light to, to, to a focal point. So just e- even being out by that much um, was completely, a, completely ruining what they could see. Um, it's interesting to note, though, between 1990-93, they did actually process some Hubble images and they were able to use computer software to correct the the optics but they but they couldn't they couldn't really use that for fainter more distant objects so the problem had to be solved at the source and there's a great story of a guy called james crocker who was a an optical engineer he was working at nasa at the time and um he traveled to munich to meet with uh, the european space agency because they were going to discuss potential solutions to the problem and when i was reading this i thought this was a bit strange but apparently in the united states at the time they didn't have adjustable retractable shower heads because uh, Crocker was in his hotel room and he was looking up at the shower and noticing how it could be retracted and adjusted. And, th- and that was his eureka moment. That's when he came up with the idea that you could create cor- corrective optics that could be retracted into position and mm-hmm. and uh, correct the flaw in um, Hubble's optics. Um, so this was one of the things that th- this is basically what they, what they came up with. Um Luckily, one of the things about Hubble was that it was designed to be able to ha- um, have regular servicing to upgrade it. So they would knew that they'd be able to actually put human beings up there to fix it. Um, and they did this um, throughout Hubble's life, really, well, up until 2009 uh, via the space shuttle. So astronauts would load into the space shuttle, they'd go up into Earth orbit, and then the space shuttle's robotic arm would grab um hubble they'd load it into the payload bay and they would perform the upgrade and then afterwards they would have about three or five days of spacewalks to to check everything over and make sure everything par was still working i mean it's incredible and think about it isn't it that um that they were able to do that yeah it's i remember reading about um mike massimino who was one of the astronauts that became known as the hubble guy because he went up and did i think he did three repair missions it might have been just two and it's it's just that's that's one of those things. It's like, well, what did you do? Well, I fixed Hubble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a great um, cool. uh, there's a great uh, photo of Mike Massimino, and he's um, during one of the servicing missions. I think it might be the last servicing mission, and he's peering through. He's, he's outside the shuttle, and he's peering in through a window. And um, the astronaut uh, Ma- Megan MacArthur is is on the inside looking at the camera, and Mike Mike Massimino is like behind her outside peering through the window. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> It's a great image. Um, you should be able to find that on NASA's website if you just do a quick Google. Um, so yeah, so so the first servicing mission was carried out by the space shuttle via the space shuttle Endeavour, which was launched in December 1993, and then they installed the uh, Wild Wide Field and Planetary Camera Two, and this is a bit of a mouthful: the Corrective Optics Space Telescope Axial Replacement, which has the nice uh, acronym CoStar, and these two devices corrected all the optics and instruments. This classic classic NASA uh, acronyms, isn't it? I, I swear they they come up with a word and then work out how they're going to shoehorn something into it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Back um, <laughs> But the uh, service, the, the, that first servicing mission took 11 months of training. Um, the astronauts spent over 230 hours in a water tank practicing with over t- 150 tools to get the procedure right before they launched. And then mm. when they were in space, it took seven astronauts 10 days and five spacewalks to fit the optics and check everything over and make sure it was... Okay, and during the mission, they also replaced the solar arrays, four gyroscopes, two magnetometers, and other electrical components. And they also upgraded the onboard computers uh, to help keep the telescope running. Um, and I, I think, really, when you when you look back at that first 
servicing mission, that's that's the thing to focus on because a lot of people that I've spoken to had this kind of um, cynical attitude to Hubble. I, like, I can't believe they launched that telescope and, you know, it cost so much money and they didn't even get it right. I mean, mistakes happen, but I think I think if you focus on the, the fact they were able to put it right, that shows the intelligence and the ability. It's like we were talking about um, in the last episode about Apollo 13. It's sometimes accident happened, but it's just as much of a remarkable achievement being able to say, okay, that happened, but we fixed it. And we made sure it worked. Exactly. They had the, yeah, the the, the foresight to, to work out how to do it, but also the ability mm. to actually do that, to actually send astronauts up to actually fix it. I mean, that's incredible yeah. when you think about it. It's it's one of the, the big um, shames about the fact that the, because the, the space shuttle program had its issues, but the fact that you now can't make these kinds of surfacing missions anymore Um people aren't even attempting to make them anymore. Uh, I think yeah. it's a shame. And I hope that in one day in the future, maybe when Orion, um, which is NASA's new human spaceflight module comes online, maybe they'll start doing these kind of serviceable, upgradable missions again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there were there were five servicing missions between 1993 and 2009. Uh, the last servicing mission was carried out via the Atlantis Space Shuttle in May 2009. Uh, it replaced the primary data handling unit and repaired other instruments um, upgraded the widefield camera to widefield camera 3 uh, and installed the cosmic origin spectrograph and a soft capture mechanism was put in which as far as I understand it would um, enable a future mission to perform a, a safe controlled deorbit of the Hubble Space Telescope. They, they basically put a handle on it. Yeah, rather than other satellites that, that burn up in the atmosphere um, it would be nice to think that one day Hubble will be sitting in Kennedy Space Center where we can all go and visit it. Mm. Hopefully. Hopefully they don't just crash it into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a big splash if it weighs two elephants equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness, yeah. <laughs> Crashing down from orbit. Um. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Oh, such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. However, uh, 
Over the last 30 years, um, since those improvements happened, uh, Hubble has been doing some incredible science. Pretty much every astronomical breakthrough of the last 30 years, Hubble has had its eye in there somewhere. Um, It's one of the most productive scientific instruments ever built. Um, Over 15,000 papers are attributed to it, um, which have 738,000 citations, which is a lot of citations, and it's done over 1.3 million observations. It's an incredible machine. Um, Obviously, I can't go over every single scientific discovery it's ever done because we'll be here all week. Um, But there are a couple which really do stand out. Um, So one of the biggest uh, things that it did was um, actually one of the things it got sent up to do in the first place, which was measure how fast the universe was expanding. And it did this by very, very accurately measuring how far away um, supernovas were in distant um, galaxies. And by by looking at that, it could tell how far away those galaxies were and how fast they were moving away from, from us here in the Milky Way. Um, and that helped them measure something called the Hubble constant, um, which is a measure of how fast the universe is expanding. Uh, it's named after Hubble the person, not Hubble the telescope, even though Hubble measured it. The, te- the telescope <laughs> measured it. Um, just to make matters really confusing. Um <laughs> But so what, was that done with, um, sorry to interrupt this, but was, was that done with those uh, Type 1A supernovas? I, I just love hearing about those. Go tell us about the Type 1A supernovas. Is. <laughs> so Type 1A supernovas are what are known as standard candles. Um, they explode, at least people highly are very confident that they explode with the same brightness every time. Um, because the way that they explode is you have two stars next to each other, uh, a star, one which is um, quite small and dense, the other one which is usually a red giant which is very diffuse but got lots of mass. The white star um, steals the the gas from around the red giant until it gets to a critical mass um, and it forms a black, uh, it goes supernova um, and that supernova, because it happens at a very specific mass, um, always has the same brightness. And if you know exactly how bright something is and you know how bright it appears, you can compare those two and work out how far away something is. So that's uh, one of the ways they measure distances in the universe. Um, And as they did this for a whole bunch of galaxies, they worked, used it to measure um, the expansion of the galaxy, the universe, and realised that not only was the expansion of the galaxy not slowing down or at an even speed, it was actually speeding up. Something was driving the galaxy further apart the further away it got. Um, If you just think about gravity, that doesn't make a lot of sense. The further apart things are, the less they're pulling on each other, so surely that expansion should slow down. Um, But that wasn't happening. So astronomers um, invented for want of a better term, uh, this concept of dark energy, uh, which is something that is kind of, as things get further apart, it drives them further away. Um, And people have been spending the last 30 years trying to work out whether dark energy even exists, um, whether there's some other explanation for the expansion of the universe. um, And if dark energy does exist, what is it and can we see it? Um, So that's one of the biggest 
big things that, that Hubble's come across. Another thing that Hubble looked into was the fact that there are supermassive black holes in the heart of every single galaxy. Before Hubble, uh, people assumed that there were black holes at the centre of galaxies, um, but they'd never actually seen them, and they didn't know how widespread they were if they did actually exist. And one of the things that Hubble could do was it had such high resolution, it could look in the heart of a galaxy and see how fast it was rotating. Um, and if the stars were rotating really fast, but there didn't appear to be anything in the middle, then you can say, oh, there must be something really massive in the centre that's stopping those stars from flying away. Um, and that would be a supermassive black hole. Uh, and Hubble did a census of, of loads and loads of galaxies and discovered that pretty much every single massive galaxy, at least everyone like our Milky Way, has one of these supermassive black holes at its centre. Um, it, it wasn't until uh, was it last a couple of years ago um, that the Event Horizon Telescope actually managed to take a picture of one of these black holes, or rather take a picture of its shadow. Um, so Hubble was really managing to like look into the literal dark and, and find these things, which I think is quite incredible. Mm. Another place where Hubble has managed to, to look where other telescopes can't is into stellar nurseries. Um, stellar nurseries are usually incredibly dusty regions, meaning if you're looking in visible light, all you're going to see is the dust. You're not going to see the stars being born inside of it. But uh, Hubble has really um, excellent infrared and ultraviolet cameras on board. Um, the infrared can look through the dust um, because infrared light does travel through the dust. And it showed that inside these, these stellar nurseries, rather than being a nice calm environment, which nursery might suggest, they were in fact incredibly violent places um, filled with enormously hot objects, throwing out shock fronts and violent force all over the place. Um, but it, because Hubble has been going for so long, this 30 years, it's been able to watch these nurseries as they grow and evolve over that 30 year baseline, which is when you think about like when you think about most stars, you think, oh, but they live for billions and billions, sometimes even trillions of years. The fact that you can see these changes happening over 30 years, I think, is actually quite incredible. Yeah, it is mad, isn't it? Mm. Like, you, you wouldn't have thought that there would have been that much difference in a star's life over the period of 30 years. That's like a, the blink of an eye in a, in a yeah. kind of stellar life. I mean, it's not, you know, going, it's not massive changes, but the fact that you can see anything at all is incredible. Finally, one discovery that Hubble is really starting to make a difference in now is something we'd never discovered it before Hubble had launched, and that was exoplanets. Um, people had always suspected that, well, if there's planets around this star, there must be planets around other stars. But it wasn't until uh, the early 1990s that people actually first discovered one around a um, sun-like star and saw one. And Hubble, because of its unique set of instruments that it has, is really good at finding water on exoplanets um, in the atmospheres. Partly that's because it's a space telescope. It's above the Earth's atmosphere. If you're trying to look for water in another atmosphere from Earth, all you're going to see is the water in our own atmosphere, which there is quite a lot of. So it, it blocks out the view. So those are my my top hits of what uh, Hubble has discovered. There are, of course, hundreds of others, um, and you can read more about some of them in the May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, um, as well as the rest of what Hubble 
has got up to and its history for the last 30 years. Yeah, no, I mean, I, just, just thinking about some of Hubble's biggest highlights, I, I, I always think it's interesting to, to see how, just how much it discovered and observed within our own solar system. Because when you think of Hubble, you think of those amazing images of galaxy and nebulae. But it, it, it did actually observe um, planets and moons um, in, in our own solar system. So it's, it's observed Jupiter's great red spot and observed fragments of the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 impacting into Jupiter, uh, produced the first ever images of Saturn's moon Titan, and detected oxygen in Jupiter's, Jupiter's moon Europa, as well as, as well as also potential water plumes in Europa, um, which is really significant when you think about planned future missions to go and sample those potential plumes, which are potentially erupting below the, uh, from below the subsurface of um, ocean of uh, Europa's icy crust, but it, and it also discovered moons around Pluto and rings around Uranus. Um, so I, I, just, I just always think it's really interesting to to kind of remind ourselves of that because, as I say, a lot a lot of Hubble's successes are are touted as as those amazing um, discoveries that you've just pointed out, Ezzy. One of the, uh, the the big things that that Hubble has been really good about in our own solar system is actually complementing missions that are in orbit. So, for instance, if you've got something like the Juno mission, which is in orbit around Jupiter, you get an incredible view, but it's up close. You can only see a small portion of the planet at a time, whereas Hubble can can take that look from far away and, and see what's going on and supply a lot of context. So there's a lot of, of um, synergy going on between the Hubble Space Telescope and, and, and various observing platforms. And also, uh, let's not forget places like Neptune and Uranus, which don't have their own missions because they're too far away. Um, at least I should say they don't have their own missions yet. People are working to try and change that. Hubble can get a reasonably decent look at them and they've Hubble's been able to, to track how these planets change as they go through their seasons, which no other telescope can really do, at least not to the same extent that Hubble can. Mm. And what about also just even Hubble in popular culture? You know, I mean, probably bar the 1969 moon landing of Apollo 11, it's difficult to think of other space missions that have left such an iconic visual imprint on popular culture in, in terms of its, its amazing images and, and, and where they've appeared. I was looking, uh, looking through my bookshelves the other day and I found a, a fantasy book, of all things, and I looked at the cover and realised that it was a Hubble image on it. Um <laughs> It's just, they're everywhere. Um, you can find them on mugs, on pencils, on on book covers. Um, they yeah. get used in films. It's just these iconic images that people instantly recognise. Um, the most famous one being the probably the, the Pillars of Creation, um, yeah. which is this kind of, that was one of the first big iconic images from yeah. Hubble. They took that one twice, didn't they? I think in the nineties, and then they they retook it because it was so popular. I think they retook it for one of the anniversaries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my own favorite Hubble um, pop culture reference is the uh, Pearl Jam album Binaural, which uh, the, the front cover of the album just it features a Hubble image of the Hourglass Nebula, and then within the liner notes, there's more Hubble images. Um, so mm. yeah, if you're a Pearl Jam fan and you're we we're wondering what that weird dual ring images on the front cover of the binaural album that's what it is it's a hubble image that reminds me of another um scientific thing that i i really should mention which was the hubble deep field um 
which was uh, a series of images that they took, which basically the the, the people running Hubble decided that they were just going to point Hubble at a random patch of sky for as long as they could, really, um, and see what they could see um, in an empty looking patch of sky. Uh, And when they processed this image, which had, you know, hours and hours of exposure time, um, they turned up thousands of galaxies. And it was that sort of first thing of, oh, this this universe is a lot more full than we think it is. Uh, (laughs) It really kind of hammered that point home. Um, And since they've done even deeper fields, um, there's the Hubble Extreme Fields, which I think has over 20 days of exposure time, if memory serves. Um, it's it's kind of stunning when you think about it. It's like this, this patch of sky that looks completely empty to most telescopes even on Earth. And then you point Hubble at it for 20-odd days and you just see this entire wealth of galaxies in it. It's incredible. It is. It's extraordinary that we're able to see things that are billions and years old as well, like these galaxies, that there's actually an image of them mm. with light that's so old. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that's the other thing. It, it's that um, really mind-blowing concept that because light takes time to travel, if you look further into the universe, you can see further back in time. And apparently in, in 2016... Hubble scientists were able to use a telescope to observe a galaxy as it existed 13.4 billion years ago, which when you consider the uh, age of the universe is uh, estimated at 13.8 billion years. Um, that, that's basically, you're, mm-hmm. you're looking back to the, to the early universe, to, to the birth of the first galaxies. Yeah, it's stupendous. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, you're, if anyone's interested in finding out a bit more about Hubble or getting involved in the 30th anniversary celebrations on social media. The uh, Hubble 30 um, hashtag is trending as we speak. And I'm sure as this podcast comes out, it'll be trending even more. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever social media platform you use that uses hashtags, um, just type in Hubble 30. And there's lots of stuff from uh, NASA and the Hubble team themselves and they're sharing science and discoveries and images and the, the history of the space telescope it's it's fascinating just scrolling through the hashtag feed so do that um but while the while the anniversary of Hubble is is obviously about looking back at all its amazing discoveries it should also be looking forward to the future and um, which brings us uh, nicely onto this episode's interview um because I've been speaking to Dr Eric Smith uh, who's NASA's program scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope, which is due to launch in 2021. The JWST is seen as a successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, continuing our observation of the universe uh, after Hubble is retired. Uh, and I started off by asking Dr. Smith exactly how JWST will build upon Hubble's legacy. So Hubble, as amazing uh, as it has been over its 30-year lifetime, uh, has told us there are some things that we would need a different facility to answer the question. So Hubble, in some sense, has set up uh, the scientific successor questions that Webb is designed to answer. And the reason Hubble couldn't uh, I'll say, finish some of the investigations or complete them is because it's 
got a, a primary mirror of a given size and its wavelength region is primarily visible. And one of the areas in particular that Hubble pointed us to was the need for a larger and infrared telescope to find some of the earliest galaxies. So Hubble enabled us to know how to build its successor. You mentioned there about um, viewing some of the earliest galaxies, and that's that's something that James Webb Space Telescope is going to be able to enable astronomers to do. It's kind of going to almost peer back in time, isn't it? That's right. Uh, because uh, of the finite speed of light and the very vast distances of space, when we see light from these earliest galaxies, uh, it has it left a long time ago. So we are seeing back in time to when the universe was young. So even though these galaxies are very distant, they're actually young when we're observing them. And their light has been redshifted by the expansion of the universe. And so it left those very young galaxies as ultraviolet and visible light but the expansion of the universe has stretched its wavelengths into the infrared, and that's why we optimized Webb to work there. So how far back would we be actually be able to look with James Webb Space Telescope? Could, could we ever actually go back as far and actually see the Big Bang happening? And if not, just how, how close do you think we could get? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, so with Hubble, we can look back to see the universe and the objects in it, some of the young galaxies, when the universe was about 500 million years old. Uh, we use microwave background experiments like uh, WMAP or the Planck mission to see the cosmic microwave background so-called surface of last scattering, which is when the universe is 300,000 years old. So in between 300,000 and 500 million, we don't know what the universe is doing. And it's that period of time we're building web to look and see in that span, when did those early galaxies first form? Was it at 200 million years, 300 million years? That's the question. <laughs> um, how do you actually go about building a space telescope that can tell you all that? It'd be really interesting to hear exactly what sort of instruments JWST is going to have um, and, and how, how this will enable it to, to observe the universe. Well, the first thing... Uh, we knew we needed to do was have this to work in the infrared. And so you can, you know where galaxies emit most of the light and you know how far the universe has stretched that light. So that tells you what wavelengths you want to optimize for. And that for us, that's wavelengths from uh, just a little bit redder than the eye can see out to about uh, 10 to 20 microns uh, so that tells you your wavelength range. Now, because these objects are very faint, we know we need a bigger mirror, and you can estimate the size of the mirror you need. And once you know those two things, then the rest of the design sort of follows. The interesting thing for us is our mirror is so big that we can't fit it into a rocket when the mirror is just one piece. So we had to make a telescope that folds up. And it's that uh, feature of web that makes it so interesting and its shape so iconic. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting hearing you talking about a mirror because lots of our readers will, will be um, amateur astronomers. And I think probably whenever a lot of people think of space telescopes, you, you imagine it being something a lot more kind of high tech or, or sci-fi or something like that, you know, to, to be able to observe the early universe. But 
it is actually operating with a mirror, like a kind of regular, like a regular refracting or, or reflecting telescope. Uh, it's, you're exactly right. This is a reflecting telescope. Uh, works just the same as the telescopes you buy and use here on Earth. Uh, we look a little different because we don't have a tube around Webb. Uh, rather, we have this sun shield, which you can almost imagine it like a parasol. So it sits on the side of the observatory that faces infrared bright sources, which for us are the sun, the earth, and the moon. And then the telescope looks out more or less parallel to that uh, parasol. So we don't need a tube. Uh, and the tube itself would have just been some mass that would have uh, you know, made the launch more difficult. So we have this so-called naked uh, mirror, and then it feeds four different science instruments, cameras and spectrographs. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope uh, orbits Earth, as we know. Um, where is the James Webb Space, Space Telescope going to actually be positioned in space? So Webb uh, needs to be very far away from infrared sources of light or, or heat. And of course, uh, Hubble being only 250 uh, or so miles, a uh, few uh, 300 some kilometers above Earth is uh, too close to an infrared source. So we're going to position Webb uh, about uh, 1.5 million kilometers from Earth at the so-called um, L2 or second Lagrange point. Uh, these are positions in any two-body orbiting system uh, discovered in the late 1700s by a, a, a French-Italian mathematician, uh, Lagrange. And if you put the telescope uh, one and a half million kilometers away. It's far from infrared sources, so you're not blinded uh, by this infrared light locally. And you can keep all of them, uh, again, to one side of you. So you just need a sun shield and you don't need a tube. And so we follow, Webb will follow the Earth in its orbit around the sun. It doesn't orbit the Earth, it orbits the sun. That far out in space, there must be a lot of sort of um, dangers and extremities to contend with, be it sort of temperature or, or micrometeorites, how, how do you, how can you ensure that the, the telescope will be safe? Uh, well, temperature-wise, it's uh, much more benign to be at L2. Uh, when you orbit the Earth, you're going in and out of the Earth's shadow, and so you're, you're, you're exposed to the sun, you're not exposed to the sun, you're exposed to the sun, and so you experience temperature gradients because of that. When you're out at L2, uh, your temperature is much more stable, so that's easier in some sense for us than an Earth-orbiting telescope. Now, we're not protected by the Earth's uh, magnetic fields, and uh, so we are a little more exposed to cosmic radiation uh, out there. And you mentioned micrometeoroids. We more or less know and can calculate what the expected number of micrometeoroids of a given size will hit us over a lifetime. And so when we were designing Webb, we knew we had to build in enough capability early on in the mission so that by the end of the mission lifetime, we were still able to do our science. So you more or less build it a little better than you need at the start so that by the time you've taken into account any micrometeoroids, you're still able to do your science. It kind of bring, brings us on to another um, point, especially in, in relation to Hubble. One of the most incredible things about the, about the Hubble uh, mission, I suppose, has been those um, shuttle missions to to repair it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to kind of correct the optics and things like that. But that's not going to be possible to JWST. Is, is that an issue, do you think? 
It's important to remember that uh, while everyone knows about the Hubble servicing missions, there really is only one satellite that was ever built to be serviced, and that's Hubble. Uh, All other satellites are built assuming you will never service them, and the same is the case with Webb, uh, primarily because we're so far away. We don't have the ability to send astronauts out out that far today, and uh, we don't have a, a robot that could do the repairs. So we have to build in to the design uh, of web uh, redundancy. So we make sure that uh, in, in the case of motors that have to deploy things, we have more than one way to address them electrically. We can back them up and redeploy kind of things. So, um, and, and this goes on for almost every other, well, for all other satellites other than Hubble. We don't uh, build in the assumption we'll service it. We make sure that we test it a lot on the ground to verify that it works and build in redundancy so that we don't need to service it. Okay. I mean, do you think if we were going back 30 years and and launching Hubble with the technology that we have now, the launch of Hubble and the construction of Hubble would would be much different? Uh, That's a great question. I think... uh, If we still had some uh, shuttle capability or even just uh, ride the Falcons uh, up there to service it, uh, at the time, this notion of a telescope and servicing, they were intimately linked. In some sense, the shuttle and Hubble pulled each other along uh, as they were being developed. Uh, there's always a debate whether it would have been cheaper to just build another Hubble, and that's a sort of interesting speculation. I don't know what the ultimate answer is. Uh, I think today we know uh, our technology is advanced enough that we don't necessarily need to build in this serviceability. Rather, we can build the smarts into the device itself. And Web is a little bit down that path. But today, uh, you can build in even more smarts into your spacecraft. You can imagine someday even self-healing spacecraft. Well, that would be incredible. So do do you mean some some sort of AI inbuilt that could could recognize um, a default and, and, and it could actually fix itself? Uh, You could imagine that in the software, but I'm even thinking, speculating farther out about materials that could heal themselves. In other words, recognize that they have, uh, you know, a micrometeoroid impact here and I need to repair myself where that happened. Uh, It's much easier to do that on uh, structures that aren't optics. Uh, I think self-healing optics is probably, uh, that's a little bit farther down the road. (laughs) Is that the sort of thing that... um... NASA is is currently looking into? Uh, I I don't know of any current research programs that are specifically looking at that, but uh, NASA does have an organization, the acronym is the NIAC, that that tends to look at really far out ideas like that, uh, just to say, you know, is there uh, anything really plausible uh, in that field. And uh, usually people are, uh, they're incredibly clever. And so even though now it sounds like science fiction, someday that will be science fact. Just to come back to JWST, I'd be interested to hear um, a bit more about the sort of science it's going to do. So um, we've mentioned that it'll look far back in time to the early universe, but what, what about some of the other kind of questions that that are really burning in astronomy and cosmology, like um, exoplanets or dark matter and things like that? Uh, well, you've, yeah, exoplanets is obviously one that people are you know keenly interested in right now, and. 
When Webb was actually started, we knew of exactly two uh, exoplanets uh, at that time. But now, of course, there are thousands, and we know of dozens that are actually uh, sort of Earth-like and nearby enough that Webb will be used to look at their atmospheres uh, using this transit spectroscopy method, where we observe when the exoplanet passes between us and the star, and we measure a spectrum of the starlight with the planet in front of, and then when the planet is not in front of. And then you can tell what's in the atmosphere of that planet if it has an atmosphere. And so we will be looking for things like water and methane and other uh, kinds of chemicals that could uh, indicate habitability uh, for those exoplanets. So that's something we already know that people are proposing to do with Webb. Uh, because it's an infrared telescope, it also is going to be used to look inside of dust clouds where stars are forming in our own galaxy, like in the Orion Nebula. Uh, infrared light penetrates these clouds of dust that get blocked by visible, that get visible, that block visible light. And so we know there are going to be programs to study the births of stars in these clouds. And finally, because we can see more or less the full history of galaxy formation, we can watch the universe assemble galaxies across cosmic time, which is, uh, you know, you get the full family picture from the baby pictures to the grandparent pictures then. <laughs> what about those those two other questions and, and uh, dark matter and dark energy? Is, is JWST going to be able to contribute anything to those uh, fields? Uh, in the in the case of dark energy, uh, people will probably be using, or they'll propose to use Webb to help us uh, get better measure of the Hubble constant, which would help to resolve. Right now, there's a controversy between uh, the age of the universe uh, or the Hubble constant measured through microwave background and through the kind of supernova studies. And so people will use Webb to help answer or address that uh, discrepancy right now. And in the case of dark matter, uh, we'll again be looking at many galaxies across uh, cosmic time and you know looking at their rotation curves to see uh, how much dark matter they would contain and does that tell us anything different from what we know from just doing visible light studies mm. um, it's, it's interesting thinking back on the the uh, Hubble mission um, because I think one of the most iconic aspects of the mission has been the incredible images and I think that's that's definitely something people are looking forward to the JWST. With JWST, will we get the same amazing images of nebulae and galaxies and, and things like that that we, that we had with Hubble? Yes, we designed uh, JWST to be diffraction limited at two microns, meaning that the pictures we take in the near-infrared will look just as sharp as the Hubble pictures do. Hubble was optimized uh, for around half a micron. Uh, and so when you put them side by side, they'll be just as sharp, but they'll be telling you about different aspects of physics because you're looking at visible light in one instance and infrared light in another. So it's the same sharp detail, but looking at slightly different things. So it'll be fascinating. Incredible. Um, and just, just finally, um, as, as far as I understand it, the outbreak of... Uh, coronavirus and, and, and the lockdown has, has put sort of further delays on JWST. I was just wondering how, how the uh, lockdown is, is actually affecting the, um, the kind of preparation and launch of JWST, but, but also 
the uh, JWST team at NASA in, in general? Are, are, are you all finding it for easy enough to, to continue with the mission in, uh, amidst all the, all the lockdown and the, and the chaos that's ensuing? <laughs> well, it's certainly uh, an interesting time for everyone uh, in, the, in the world uh, having to uh, work from home in many cases. Uh, at Northrop Grumman in uh, Southern California at their Space Park facility where the hardware is right now, work is continuing on integration and test, uh, mindful of social distancing sort of considerations you have to take into account. Uh, So they are progressing there. Uh, Folks at the Space Telescope Science Institute, and I know at the European Space Agency and Canadian Space Agencies, a lot of them are working from home. And there's some work you can do from home, some software development, and catching up on paperwork, the kind of things that uh, tends to, you, you get behind that a little bit towards the excitement uh, at the end of a mission. Uh, so work is continuing, uh, n- not at the same pace as it uh, as it would. Of course, we have to take the uh, coronavirus effects into account. And, and once we come out of this at the other end, we'll, we'll evaluate our schedule and see, uh, see how things look. But uh, it's important to remember that work uh, still is progressing right now. Well, that's good to hear. Um... But yeah, Eric, uh, thanks very much for speaking to me today. And I just want to say, um, I hope that we manage to get out of lockdown soon and you can get back to building this amazing telescope. And, and we look forward to seeing the science results that come out of it. Uh, uh, we all uh, are here. There's uh, a lot of us have been working for many years on it. And, uh, you know, we're that close right now. So we're very excited. That was Dr. Eric Smith. And you can find out more about Hubble and JWST by visiting our website at www.skynetmagazine.com. Now for our stargazing tip for May. This month will be the last opportunity to see the planet Venus in the evening sky for some time, though it will still be visible in the mornings. The bright planet is easy to spot even during the day, making it the perfect observation to make as we head towards summer and the nights get shorter. For safety, you should only try to look at Venus for a telescope or binoculars after the sun has set. Venus will be most obvious throughout the first half of the month. On the 1st of May, the planet will be visible for four hours after the sun sets, but by the end of the month, it will only be up for around half an hour. One date put in your calendars, however, is the 22nd of May. On that day, Venus and Mercury will pass each other closely in the sky, an effect known as a conjunction. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about Hubble in our May issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also celebrate the Sky at Night's 800th episode by talking with four amateurs who have followed the show's passion for astronomy. We also find out more about the greatest comets of the last century and look forward to the best conjunctions of 2020. And that's not forgetting our regular sections that will help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.